Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob podcast. Sometimes you get the opportunity to interview some of your heroes, and today I get that opportunity. Andrew Turner is, I think, one of the founders of what we call modern neogeography, whatever it is, the geeky stuff that we do. He was writing about this in 2006 when he authored a short book titled Neogeography for O'Reilly. Does anybody remember who O'Reilly were? I wonder. They were one of the coolest companies in the Web2 era. I read that book, that little booklet, when I was running my GIS consultancy, GDC, And I quoted its potential impact to lots of our customers and colleagues. And it became a little bit of a reference book for us in the early stages. And then in 2009, I was chairing a geocommunity conference in the UK. And we brought Andrew over to Keynote, which was the first time that we'd actually met face to face. And all I can say is it was a revelation for everybody who attended and not least because Andrew managed to get through 102 slides in 30 minutes. He moves through a slide deck at a pace that nobody else I have ever met can do. But the other reason it was a bit of a revelation was because this was a GIS conference. You know, there were people using MapInfo, ArcGIS, and all of those kind of tools. And Andrew gave a talk, which was How Neogeography Killed GIS. Today, we get the chance, some 12 years later, to catch up with Andrew and find out whether he still thinks that neogeography killed GIS. Andrew, welcome to the GeoMob podcast. Thanks, Stephen. It's really great to be here and great to talk to you again and again after all these years. Yeah, it is great to have you here. So tell us a little bit about your journey through geo, because you didn't start as a geographer, if I understand correctly. In fact, we all make this crack It's really not that difficult. It's not rocket science. But if I recall correctly, you were a rocket scientist at one stage. (laughs) Yeah, that that is that is true. So I always find that as a it's a funny joke that's and sometimes it is. So yeah, my background actually is I'm an aerospace engineer by training and by profession. I used to work actually on airships, built a solar powered airship in, in my undergraduate university. And from there I went and worked on building spacecraft. And interestingly enough, this is in the 90s, I was designing machine learning algorithms for spacecraft control systems, which at the time was crazy and radical. And who would ever believe machine learning algorithms were, were trustworthy or useful? Now, obviously, you see that just being a very ubiquitous uh, method that people are applying all over the place. So definitely, it's been, a, it's been an interesting shift from that background of rocket science to where I am now. Okay, so we're here to talk about neogeography. And term sounds pretty quaint now. And in fact, I was chatting to some friends and saying that I was going to have this podcast interview with you, and that we were going to do a retrospective on neogeography. And they're traditional geographers, GIS people, and they questioned whether there was anything new about neogeography, even back in the day when you were talking about it. So were you the first person to coin the term neogeography? Uh, I definitely was not. It, the word was inspired to me by Diane Eisner. If you recall, she was the co-founder of a company called Placial, which was a really innovative company at the time, which its whole purpose was allowing people to mark up places that they loved around the world. So people could mark their favorite tree. They could mark places they liked to hike. And 
again, the time that was really radical. I don't know if you remember, it's, it's sometimes yeah. hard to think back to that time period. But 2006 and 2005, when I started working on this, the Slippy Map had just kind of become into, into fruition, right? So Google had acquired a company, an Australian company, and released a Slippy Map at the same time Yahoo was working on it. A lot of people That's were working right. on the technology, and it all kind of, you know, came out of H- Ajax in that era. But the idea that mapping became something that was interactive, that didn't require a whole page reloads like MapQuest, was something you could actually play with and explore and was fun. And then if you recall at the time, there was another innovation. The idea of a mashup was invented. So housing maps yeah. took Craigslist and placed them on a map. And it was people saw that as kind of a revolutionary shift of, well, it can actually take something from you know, one database or API or the web and this idea of web 2.0, and I can mix it with something else. And now maps uh, that became just easy to use and anybody could create them in seconds, interact with them and explore them at infinite scale was actually a shift, right? And this was before the iPhone was out. GPS had just turned off uh, selective availability. So all of a sudden, high precision GPS had just become available a few years before. So what it was, was actually convergence of a lot of different technology changes the time, accessibility of data via the web, the idea that anybody can kind of make their place on the web and homestead it and, and, and share their own ideas. We talked a little bit about blogging. Uh, social media was just starting. I think Twitter came out about that time. So there's also kind of a psychological shift, the idea that anybody could publish their own idea in seconds to the entire world. Again, these were all big paradigm shifts that were going on in general. And then I see neogeography as just one microcosm of that, of taking all this amazing technology that had been developed for decades and all of a sudden put it in the hands of anybody to use for whatever purpose they want to without having to ask for permission, ask for licenses, uh, go through long publication cycles. I have an idea, and in a few minutes or an hour, I'm, I'm launching this idea to the whole world. You know, I... When you mentioned the housing maps, and at the same time as housing maps, there was also the the Chicago crime map came out. They came, they appeared within a couple of weeks of each other. And I always wonder, both of those applications hacked the Google Maps URL, you know, because at the time they were URL calls and they sort of decoded how Google was putting pointers on a map and hacked it to enable them to produce those things. And it always occurred to me that there must have been a conversation in Google's offices at Mountain View where somebody, maybe Michael Jones, I don't know, was presented with the fact, these guys have hacked our API and they're using our API to make their own maps and publishing maps of housing or crime figures. What should we do? And I sort of wonder what would have happened. You know, he must have, somebody made the decision that they were just going to let it happen and that then they published the API to make it widely available, which was the sort of source for all the creativity that followed. But what would have happened if they hadn't done that, I wonder? Yeah, well, I think you've talked to other people as well. I think the technology at that time was just going to emerge yeah. anyway. And, and there are already other clients coming out. And Open Layers, the, the really popular open source mapping library, came out a little bit afterwards with. I'll mention this too, because you mentioned about people who can present at, at high speeds. Skylar Earl definitely challenges <laughs> me for that. And he was, he was one of the co-creators with Chris Schmidt around open layers at the time. So I think it was definitely, it was a really good idea for Google to adapt, you know, whether they're playing on it or not, but to lean into that and really adapt it. Because from their perspective, it meant, wait, people are going to organize their data and push data into our search index, right? That's something that they're always trying to do. And this was kind of a really good honeypot for doing that. And people got value on both sides. But I think it would have happened anyway. There's stories I heard about Yahoo was working on on uh, Yahoo Maps and My Maps, a similar concept at the same time. So there are 
like many, many things, there's many ideas all of a sudden seem to pop at the same time, much like the Wright brothers in flight, or I'm reading a book actually about the invention of calculus between Newton and, and Leibniz. And they're both happy at the same time, even though they're distributed, just kind of as a convergence of thought and, and um, history and conversation that goes on. So I don't think we necessarily were on the crux of many things happen, get innovated because of a person, but I think at the same time, the zeitgeist was there for it to emerge. Right. Okay. And back in the day, you suggested the difference between neo-geography and traditional GIS was that GIS was tool-centric and <laughs> neo-geography was user-centric. That, even at the time, felt a little bit unfair, but do you think it's still the case today that sort of so-called professional GIS is tool-centric rather than user-centric? I'm going to tread lightly here. <laughs> <laughs> because I'll first say that I think this uh, this conflict between them was something that was more generated by, by the community as kind of a way to either you know, jumpstart a conversation on the positive side or maybe a sense of defensiveness on the other side. But, I mean, in reality, it's, I mean, technology itself is generally ambiguous. It's all about its usage and its application. And this happens with any kind of, any kind of technology, whether it's a, a steam engine or it's a computer. In my background, and this is actually one of the things that motivated me around shifting from spacecraft to, to mapping and geospatial was, you know, you go and build these amazing technologies and only a few people in the world have access to it because it was designed for that. Who else wants, who could imagine who else wants uh, global cloud cover or temperature data? That's only for the few scientists in the world that know how to do something with that. When in reality, the opportunities, everyone wants to know the weather around them. Everyone wants to know whether it's going to rain today or tomorrow, whether I plant crops, uh, whether I should plan that vacation next weekend or not. So decision-making happens at a very personal level, but often historically, the access to the technology and the information technology might produce has been very siloed, partly just by design, sometimes by their intent. And so I don't think it's necessarily inherently the technology is probably even a bad thing to say that one aspect of people developing the technology are thinking about those systems, the design of those systems, and take GIS as one of those, the ability to design standards and data formats and, and write code interfaces that allow one to work with the data, whether the data come from a satellite or a balloon or a sensor or a person. The idea of a well-designed system is, is it's agnostic to those things. It can handle them and then can be repurposed in different ways, whether it's around doing launching flying a satellite or it's around flying an airplane or it's actually around whether I need an umbrella tomorrow. Those are all those applications of usage. And that's really what I was advocating. And I still believe ultimately is the case today, is that GIS is around the technology because it needs to be a very flexible system for all the different types of data sources, the types of analyses, the types of applications. And ideally, that one data source can be used in thousands of different ways if we design the technology to be flexible enough. And that's okay. But then the point was to open up the conversation was neo-geography. And really, it was, it was interesting to lean on that term and, and really as the way to have people think differently around it, much like, say, a social science would where you think about what's the application spaces? What happens if you put this technology and it's used for not dozens of uses, but thousands, millions, and potentially billions of different uses? I mean, even to the point where I, as one person, have many different uses of the same data set maps, as I just mentioned, for weather alone, in terms of the decisions I'll make around this stuff. That's what I think is still that opportunity and still is a meaningful thing, is to think about that, that user-centric, that human-centered design has become a, a popular term recently as well. That's important to think about because then it's the use of technology, but it's also around governance. It's around privacy. It's around ethics and transparency around those things that have to round out the use of the technology for appropriateness and also for understanding. So I think there's still really valuable to, to talk about 
NeoGeography and GIS in different contexts, much like you might talk about GIS being used in other application domains, whether it's remote sensing or it's transportation logistics and so on, because then you can situate it in all the things that need to happen around it to actually be successful and used appropriately and actually then measure its effectiveness so it can keep learning and improving over time. I, I think you've got you've hit the nail on the head there, because in a way, it's like the traditional GIS that we both know and love is this massive toolbox that can do thousands or millions of different things. And in the same way that we don't have one website for everything, we have hundreds of different little web applications. We have hundreds or thousands of applications that are using geography now, and that is new. You know, the fact that you've got transport, you've got weather has got geography, you know, almost everything that we do has got an element of geography in it. And it's 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 that rather than this massive toolbox that we we grew up with, which could do all of those things, but required an expert to actually work out which tools they needed to use and how to do it. So I think it is an interesting difference. But a little bit after you came out with NeoGeography, our friend Ed Parsons, who actually worked at Google, but he didn't work at Google at the time that he came up with this, I don't think, or he may have just joined them. He came up with the term paleogeographers to make fun of traditional data providers, software companies, and those practitioners who were rooted in that desktop environment. And you predicted that neogeography would overwhelm that paleogeography, the traditional GIS. Do you think that's happened? <laughs> well, overwhelmed might be a loaded term, but I, I do think that neogeography has flourished to a scale and a size well beyond what you would think of as GIS, as you think of a, you look at market scale and market size. And Ed's a perfect example, right? Ed comes out of a, a government geospatial agency who's now mm-hmm. at a consumer commercial company who's utilizing uh, geospatial capabilities in ways that are essentially transparent to most people, whether it's doing a search at Google or they're using Google Maps to find out how to get to their favorite restaurant or to a park, to businesses and things like that around this behind the scenes. That's, you know, one example of just taking it from one, one national agency into a global company, right? But it's actually interesting when you look at the number of other companies now that have adopted this, right? The idea that even going back to I mentioned earlier, that Craigslist didn't have maps and now it is baked in to Craigslist. You can, people can set up a radius-based search and alerting, a geo-alert, if you got really geeky about it, really it's just like, no, just search within 50 miles of my house because that's the only willingness I'm willing to drive to pick something up. And if I look at actually, I, I'm, I'm on these, I'm very involved in a lot of different communities still, so I'm very involved in the OpenStreetMap Foundation. And it's interesting now in the advisory board call, I'm on these calls with all these other geo-hackers that I've known for now 20 years. And we're all kind of hacking on different maps and displays and things like that. And now, they're at Facebook, they're at Apple, they're at Amazon, I'm at Esri. All these people that were hackers are now in these companies that are now setting the expectations and standards. They're building in OpenStreetMap and open source and GIS into Facebook. So anytime someone plans an event or talks to a group or posts photos, those are all geotagged. Apple Maps and Google Maps, Amazon's launched their services now and it's baked into everything that they do, obviously internally for logistics, but externally as a service for now other people to build on top of as well. And just looking at things like Uber, and I think you've even seen Pinterest and other places where they're just baking in maps and geospatial just as much as you think of time. And it just yeah. becomes, you know, the I was listening to your, your conversation with Paul Ramsey, the idea that geography and geospatial is, is a type, 
right? And there's always the little trope that spatial isn't special. Well, it's great. It should be baked in. It should be part of it. But utilizing it, interacting with it still is special. The way in which you talk about it, you interact with it as a user and the way it handles the database is actually special. And that's now being just integrated not as a separate product or a separate service. It's just becoming part of all of those services. Yeah, I think it was Ed Parsons again, bless him, who came up or was one of the first to use that phrase, spatial isn't special. And I always said, you may say that, but we might come to regret that if it really isn't special. But the reality is that when you're talking about data, which can run in petabytes per day of real-time data, that is a massive challenge for anybody to handle, you know. And I think whilst integrating spatial into applications and making it, you know, literally the same as time, you know, you can ask the where question, not in an SQL statement, but in a geographic way, in the same way as you could ask a when state. That has made spatial not special, but the data still remains, for me, a complexity that requires some understanding. You know, you can't just look at a web Mercator map and think that you can do all of your spatial calculations just using the pixels on the screen in web Mercator. So when you were talking, at, and I keep going back to this AGI event because it was a stunning talk that you gave, Andrew, and I, I had to go back. I wish we'd recorded those things and videoed them at the time because it really was a spectacle. But you said, you said the technology is bringing people closer to their worlds and empowering them to define a future that reflects their values, hopes, and dreams. And that was a quote that you had up on a slide in 2009. Do you remember who, that, who, who the quote came from? The quote, as I, as I understood it, it came from Jack Dangerman, who's the yeah. founder and CEO of Esri. Yeah. And I think that was, people remarked at the time because it was, I even kind of left it as a, as a gave the quote and then kind of the reveal because I think, again, go, there's a perspective there, whether it was around, hey, what does Andrew think in the geography to there's perspective on Esri and, and its role and experience in the world as, as opening up geospatial. And so I think that was an interesting one to talk about, but it's, I'll, I'll be honest, I've been at Esri actually just over nine years now and it's held true. It's been actually pretty amazing in terms of that's core to the Jack's perspective on, on the opportunity for geospatial, as well as the entire company's perspective. It's yeah. been really amazing to see and then, and then to be a, a part of. I concur with that. You know, despite the fact that we see Esri as the bear moth of the geospatial industry, and some people see them as a force for good, and other people are critical of the organization on the small number of occasions when I've had the pleasure to meet Jack Dagemond, he has always inspired me with his passion for what people can do with geography and how it can be a force for good in the world. And I genuinely believe, and I know others may not agree with me, that he believes that regardless of whether you do it with his technology or not. Of course, he'd like you to do it with Ezra's technology. And I remember, because I was, I have been for quite a long time a partner, shareholder, non-exec chair of a big Google Maps partner in the UK. So I've been quite close to Google's geospatial team and what they're doing. And I remember going to a launch that they did some time ago when I think it was Google Earth Engine or Google Maps Engine, one of their Google something engines, and thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is going to replace enterprise GIS and it's going to knock these you know it's really going to be a threat to Esri and actually the reality is no it wasn't it never never could have been and 
The only thing you can say about it is that it did stimulate the company to go on. And if you look at Esri in 2020, 2021, and you look at their online offering and the ease with which you can make maps with their technology, it is very much the vision that you had over 10 years previously for, for neo-geography. You know, neo-geography, or what you described as a user-centric geography, is what people are doing now with Esri tools and with other companies' tools, you know, people like Carto. And that's what people are doing now today. It has become that user-centric geography. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's been the best thing can happen in any industry is there's a healthy competition, right? And it causes innovation where innovation can happen spontaneously. But like I said before, the more that people are playing off each other, I think the, the faster that goes. What's been interesting about, and going back to that quote of Esri, is yeah, just seeing the, again, it's something that Jack, well, as the, any leader, he's leading by example and by passion, but definitely is across the company is people work on all these different projects and, and products that we work on. So, you know, Story Maps is one that some colleagues of mine work on that's been really interesting to see how people tell place-based stories. And there's ones I see about history of, of DC where I live. I see them about history of people's personal travels. And that's just one really poignant example of where people are utilizing geospatial and in this case, GIS technology pretty close to it, but there's a user experience that really is about storytelling. It's like people, what you do for media now, when they're telling these rich, immersive stories of which geography and maps and cartography really help people understand the whole story. And now kind of putting that at the fingertips of anybody, of, of millions of people being able to create these and tell their own personal geospatial stories is amazing. And then it's something that we're carrying across to a lot of our different technologies. And then, as you mentioned, it's also collaborating with the whole industry and the whole ecosystem around that, whether they're also geospatial companies or, as I mentioned before, companies that are using geospatial. So it's been it's really kind of amazing to see the, that thrive because ultimately then it creates the, I'll be honest, the expectation of, of people that, well, where why can't I ask my question geographically? I want to find a place to live and I don't want to just find, as you mentioned, by distance to map, I want to find places with good walk scores, right? There was a really interesting analysis done by where now Zillow has it built in. You can analyze around where I want to live based on places that have good walkability, right? Which is not a traditional see the dots on the map. It's a really complex analysis, but is a fundamentally, and is a fundamentally geographic question, but actually is portrayed in a way that allows people to ask these questions very colloquially. And that's something we're seeing happen across many different industries. So you mentioned that you've been at Esri for nine years now. Mm -hmm. That was quite a transition for you because you'd worked in open data, you'd worked with open source, and then you joined the leading proprietary geographic software business in the world. How did that actually come about and what's it like? Yeah, so that kind of transition was interesting. So even going back to the change from, from aerospace engineering and rocket science, uh, I got involved with a project uh, with Mikhail Marin, who's one of the originators around OpenStreetMap and humanitarian OpenStreetMap. And he and I worked on a project called Mapufacture, which was taking GRSS feeds, if you remember what those are, and KML feeds, yep. and making it very easy for anyone to build their own map. From that, we actually joined with a company called GeoIQ with Sean Gorman and team to yep. build out web-based GIS. And we worked on that for a number of years. And then in 2012, uh, GIQ was acquired by Esri to continue that, that idea. So really, the trajectory actually has been very similar. Along the way, it's been two things. It's being innovative, and I love experimenting with new technologies. I love building interesting interfaces that people use, and I love open source software. And that's been true at all three of those places. All three of those places were a business that wanted to be viable and grow, but also be innovative and open and collaborative. 
and that's what's been interesting at Esri when I when I joined was that was definitely the perspective was well this is very different it's, it feels like for Andrew probably a big shift I don't think you'll stay there very long and the reality was the culture was the same it's around solving these meaningful problems utilizing technology and then being as open as possible so when we joined from GIQ we're, a few things were kind of <laughs> given the mandate to do is keep doing what you're doing keep trying to innovate both the industry and and work in Esri and help us innovate and keep growing because they've been doing it for decades and wanted to keep growing and unfortunately have a lot of colleagues that want to keep trying out new ideas and we actually started well I wouldn't say start open source Esri had two open source projects GeoPortal Server and OpenStreetMap Editor and since then we've kicked off the open source at Esri as a broader strategy and I think there's now 500 open source projects that Esri publishes and maintains both that we use in our core technology and we just offer up as examples for other people to use. So that's been great because it was actually continuing that idea and really helping contribute to either existing open source projects or active contributors, maintainers, or, or supporters of, of the GDAL or Google project and a lot of other ones as well. But on the other side, you mentioned about open data. What was really interesting there, and actually the thing I think that's I still think is very passionate, I'm very passionate about is the idea that data being made open and accessible. So at GIQ, that was something we did. But we one thing we learned was, you mentioned before, around the kind of challenges to, is this going to replace enterprise GIS? And what I learned very much at Esri was that you can go build a great platform and it can have all these great technology and capabilities, but it's a far different reality from what someone's going to run day-to-day as part of their business. And Esri has, that, has known that for decades, how to go and run geospatial infrastructure as part of a government agency or as part of an industry. And it's more than just saying you have the technology. It's a lot of training. It's a lot of documentation. It's a lot of support. I mean, the Ezra User Conference, if you or listeners have never been there, it's it's an amazing convergence of 18,000 people who are all incredibly passionate about geospatial, all coming together to share ideas and learn. And it's like that kind of ecosystem that you have to build and maintain to really go and say, I'm going to build geospatial technology. It's going to run a city that's going to support them as they grow and they build and evolve their, their use of the technology. So I didn't talk about what I've been really, my role at Esri now is I'm the director and CTO of Esri's Research and Development Center in Arlington, Virginia, next to Washington, D.C. But my day job really is, is overseeing what we call ArcGIS Hub. This is a, a product, a platform that we offer up to every government in the world and nonprofit to go and share out open data. And it was that pivot from building a generalized open data platform into building a capability that any organization can turn on and then start sharing up their open data. That was the big pivot for us, where we now are powering tens of thousands of open data sites around the world, whether they're very small municipalities to national agencies. So we power a number of UK open government data sites, the Irish government, Kenyan government, US national agencies, a whole continental open data portals around the world. It went from something that was a big lift and very, very complicated and very expensive in time, at least, to now something that they can turn on with a push of a button and share out data in, in, in many open APIs with open source technology around that in just a few minutes. And that's been amazing. But that's like a necessary but insufficient condition for actually accomplishing what we all want to see is actually having that data be used. So that's where we're actually going back to spending a lot of time and interesting passion around is how to go and make that data easy to use. So as I mentioned about weather, that people can find out what's going around them with weather. You can go to Google to find out around stores and parks and things like that. But what you're really missing is what actually city has every day and the town has every day that's thriving. Who's my elected official? Uh, what's What school district am I in? What's the police district I'm in? When are, is there going to be street construction on my road coming up in the future? This is all that amazing data that's been sitting in government databases the way they operate. 
But through our work, we've been making it to where it's openly accessible. Anybody can go and find the data. And then ultimately, anybody can use the data so they can say, what's going on around my house? What's going to affect me day to day? Where should I travel today such that I'm avoiding road construction, the air quality is good, that I can visit a park that maybe has a new program that's opening up for young children, for example. So it's an example of an analysis or, or interface that I've made for myself in my own city around utilizing all the open government data. So to me, that's kind of one of those big shifts is taking all that amazing data, which was like satellite data, but also locked into city data and now making it accessible and usable by anybody. And I guess the next stage is to enable the average non-technical citizen to step through a simple process and produce their own dashboard that gives them the information that they want without having to search for it and without understanding how to use it just to be able to present that information to them on a daily or hourly basis. Sounds like an opportunity for neo-geography. Sounds like an opportunity for <laughs> neo-geography. Indeed, it does. So it sounds like these nine years at Esri have been fun. They've been creative. You still seem to be inspired and passionate about the work that you're doing. And I know when I saw you, I think it was in Boston in 2017. I think that's the last time we saw each other. Yeah. You then were, you were presenting about a whole charting library that your team had created and that you'd made open source. So you are still generating open source software that can be used outside of, you know, well, across all domains. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, definitely true. Yeah. So definitely we're continuing to open source. That was the uh, Cedar charting library that now is uh, hmm. that version of it's being deprecated. We're actually going to be releasing a new one in the, in the future with a number of our colleagues in Esri. But yeah, we're open sourcing continually a number of different components, libraries, and capabilities every day. Releasing them, we're building new ones. We're always listening to, looking to collaborate with others as well on, on different open source projects. So, Andrew, before we wrap up, you were a visionary 15 years ago when you wrote the Neo Geography book. Be a crystal ball gazer for a minute and look forward. What do you think digital geography will look like in... 10 to 15 years time, what will be different? <laughs> well, first, I'll, I'll say something I've learned since in over the last 10 or 15 years is that things uh, honestly move slower than you think. It, it takes a while for these things to emerge. And so it just takes a lot of effort and energy to do it. So it's easy to make predictions, but what will happen, we'll see. But I guess generally is that it's the idea that Geography will keep getting integrated to everything we do. And just because it's geographic doesn't mean it's cartographic. You won't always see the map of it. But the thing I think that's going to the big next paradigm shift from my perspective is going to be augmented reality. I think just much like the web made it and at any moment at our fingertips, I can look up information. You know, no longer are we wondering at dinner time around who won the that sports game 10 years ago or what's the name of, of that 15th president. We can just look that, that information up immediately. I think augmented reality is going to change that to where I don't even necessarily have to look it up. It's overlaying on the world around me. So seeing what games like Niantic, right? You mentioned. Mm -hmm. Google Earth and really <laughs> that whole Keyhole team, they spun out to form Niantic, which is now Pokemon Go, and they're pivoting. I just saw they put a post out there with a, a new platform, I think, called LightSail, where they want to make it now anybody can easily do augmented reality. But I've been experimenting this in my own my spare time and starting to release some, some one-off little projects around building an augmented reality application now is really simple. It only takes a few hours to do. You can use off-the-shelf game engines to now big build augmented reality applications with live geospatial data. So now I can walk around my, my neighborhood and I can hold my phone up and I can ask questions looking at the tree that I'm in front of. 
what kind of tree type are you? When were you planted? How healthy are you? And I can provide feedback to the city on that. So I think that's what we're going to start seeing over the next 10 to 15 years is that kind of layered in. And the technology exists today in our phones, the ability just to hold it up and, you know, you look at QR codes, but being able to now layer information on the world around me geographically and locally. And then if there is the emergence of going back to hard technologies, if they are, does get built into glasses and other things, great, it'll just be more accessible. But that idea that we're already carrying around these network connected, you know, phones in our pocket that have a camera that can overlay this now as a commodity, I think is just ripe for innovation, layering all this new information on such that then we can actually really understand what's going on around seeing the invisible of the world that's currently in those databases and those APIs, but now layered on as we move around our city. So it becomes less invasive in how we're moving around. So that's what I'm most eager about seeing is, is again, creating that accessibility, that information and beyond at your fingertips, but actually at your eyeballs, when and how you want to use it, which comes into whole other, we're not going to have time about it now, but those whole aspects of ethics and usage around those things. So how do we do those things responsibly? How do we not make them dangerous uh, when people are operating vehicles? How do we not layer them with ads? So while I think there's a huge opportunity with the technology and the usability of it, I think we're also going to have to have really meaningful conversations and lay out good patterns as a community on how to use them appropriately. Okay. And I think I thought you were going to mention satellites and sensor data more than that, because I think if I was going to add my 10 to 15 year view, it would be the fact that we're going to have thousands of things orbiting the planet in low orbit, medium orbit, and colossal amounts of data coming through that enable us to to have just a minute-by-minute understanding of the planet that we live on, you know, and things like, you know, traffic, what's going on, particularly with an environmental crisis, you know. I mean, Mm -hmm. actually being able to see the fires in California in near to real time, how they're moving and things like that. And I think that will have, as we learn how to deal with these colossal amounts of data, that will be transformative. I mean, if we go back just for a second to finish to, to when those first slippy maps came in, to being, if you remember that in 2004, 2005 with Google and Yahoo, it was transformative because previously we'd had, I can't even remember what the the web mapping engines were, but Esri had a web mapping engine, MapInfo had a web mapping engine, and a mid-sized server could generate 60 map images, 60 small map images a minute. You know, And we actually measured their capacity and the number of map images they could generate per minute. And then we, and it was impossible to refresh the maps as fast as people wanted to. And then we went to slippy maps and we were, we suddenly had a technology which enabled us to seamlessly pan and zoom the map and there was no noticeable user delay. And we learned how to deal with vast amounts of data and channel it through to a browser. Now we're starting to learn how to deal with one or two or even 10 orders of magnitude more satellite data coming through. And we're learning how to process that and extract intelligence from that. And I think if, you know, I was going to make my prediction, it would be around the intelligence that we can get from that data and how we'll be using it. And there will open up all sorts of things. So augmented reality real-time data from satellites. There's going to be a new geography again in 10 years' time, and we'll be looking back at that and say, do you remember when all we did was put pins on slippy maps? <laughs> it'll, be, it'll, be, yeah, it'll be quite quaint, but yes, I definitely agree with you. I think real-time data feeds from many sources, satellites being one of them. 
But I'll tell you, but sometimes rocket science, it's still mm. very expensive to build and launch and maintain satellites. So they'll be up there and there's, it's amazing what companies are doing with those now. But I think you're going to still see, those are going to be amazing for cap- capturing the global data, but you're going to see, I think, an order of magnitude, larger scale and uh, emergence of new ter- uh, terrestrial sensors. So right. every street lamp, every car, every phone, every sidewalk uh, having different sensors on it as well. The idea is, yeah, how do you synthesize all those things together? Because ultimately, not everyone's going to care about petabytes of, of data and sources. They want to know, again, they want to answer that question that's very relevant to them at the moment they want it. So the idea of real-time analysis and real-time decision-making, I think, is ultimately what, what's going to be the thing that's going to be most impactful to how people might live their lives or make their business decisions. And it will be great to talk to you again in another 10 years' time <laughs> and to see how right or wrong we both were. Well, hopefully Turner. before then, but yes. Well, well, hopefully before then we'll get together. But Andrew, on behalf of the GeoMob audience, thank you very, very much for your time. If people want to get in touch with you, just what's the best way to reach you? So the best way is probably on Twitter at AJ Turner. And I also have my blog, highearthorbit.com. Okay, I'll put both of those links into the show notes so that people can look you up. Andrew, it's been a pleasure. Great talking to you. You too, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.